you'll turn to page 6 in your bulletin, we'll continue this morning our uh, tour of Israel, if you will, as Cameron um, alluded to. We did last Sunday have, you know, I knew I had too many pictures for an hour, so, but I just did it anyway. And um, so we'll, we'll continue those next Sunday evening, but lots of pictures, lots of stories. And I, I want to share a few more of those with you this morning. And so we're kind of following this theological path, as I described last week, the, the land and the prophet and the priest and the king. And so this morning, we're going to take a look, as you see on page six there in your bulletin, we're going to take a look at one of the most neglected books in the Bible, the Chronicles, the Chronicles of the Old Testament, which really are fascinating um, historical accounts. And here in Second Chronicles, we read about King Solomon fulfilling a very old agreement, an agreement with God and his father David that Solomon would be the one who would build a house for the Lord, that Solomon would be the one who would actually build a temple in Jerusalem, a place where God's people could know that God is with them. And so in the early chapters of Second Chronicles, you read about how Solomon made arrangements for all the building materials from a, a nearby country to be delivered to Jerusalem, and he enlisted uh, tens of thousands of laborers and craftsmen and overseers for the work, and after about seven years, when the work was finally finished, God moved in. And this is Second Chronicles chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Thus all the work that Solomon did for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated and stored, the silver, the gold, and all the vessels in the treasuries of the house of God. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel in Jerusalem, to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled before the king at the feast that is in the seventh month, and all the elders of Israel came, and the Levites took up the ark. And they brought up the ark, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The Levitical priests brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim, the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that they made a covering above the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets that Moses put there at Horeb, that is Mount Sinai, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, for all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves without regard to their divisions, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun, their sons and kinsmen, arrayed in fine linen, with cymbals, harps, and lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. And it was 
the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised, with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever, the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray that you would help us to see and understand through your word that you would give to us your spirit so that we might believe, so that we might recognize that you not only built a stone temple in Jerusalem, but you are building yet still today your church. And for that, we give you praise and thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. And be seated. Last week, I found myself needing a replacement part for an electronic device. And so I looked it up online to find out where I could find such a thing. And I found a company online, a number of them, but one of them looked reputable that I could could look into and inquire of this. And they actually even had a 1-800 number on their website that said, call us if you have any questions. So I called them because I had questions. And... There was an answer at the other end. It was not a person. It was a recording. And you can guess the script of the recording. It went something like this. Thank you for calling our company. If you are a business, press 1. If you are a government agency, press 2. If you are a laboratory, press 3. If you would like to repeat this message, press 4. And I found myself in that moment in a place where you've been before, where you're thinking, um, I'm none of those things. What do I do here? Do I, do I pretend to be a business or a laboratory or a government agency and press one, two, or three? None of those things fit me, but I don't want to press four and hear it all over again. I know what it said. I'm stuck. You've been in this place too. We call it voicemail jail, Right? You've been in voicemail jail. You've been in that place where there's just no clear path to get you where you need to go. Now, you might know this little secret. Sometimes you can actually dial zero to get yourself out of voicemail jail. And if it works, if it works in that instance, it might get you to a real person because only a real person can actually get you where you need to go, right? Only a real person can give you access to what you really need. You know, every day of your life, you need someone to intercede for you. You need someone who has their foot in the door where you need to go, and they can get you in. You need someone who has access to the thing or to the person that you need at that moment, and they can get you into that place. Every day of your life, you need somebody to intercede for you in some practical way. How much more than the people to whom the creator of the universe had introduced himself through Abram. He had, through the old man's journey, we saw a couple of weeks ago, he had made clear the land. He had marked out the territory where God would begin his redemptive work. And he would, in years to come, through Moses and Samuel and Elijah and other prophets, he would make his word clear 
as to just what that gospel, what that redemption would entail. But if that redemption were to happen, and it was to happen, then a path had to be cleared. An access had to be created and cleared because the chasm that separated the rebellious creature from the just and perfect creator was far greater than any voicemail jail. So, enter the priest. Now, like the prophet, the priest had a job to do, and it's very particular in in Scripture, in the Old Testament especially. You read of it, but you read of it also in the New Testament in many places. The priest had a job to do, and like the prophet's job, it also could be dangerous, but for different sorts of reasons. The prophet found himself often facing the threat of unreasonable and rebellious people like Elijah on Mount Carmel. The priest, though, often found himself facing the threat of a righteous and perfect God. It was his job to intercede. That was what a priest was to do. And that job was not new in Solomon's day, as we've read here, though. As Solomon built that temple in Jerusalem, it had been, at that point, about 480 years, actually, since Moses had led the people out of Egypt and into the wilderness. And in that wilderness, you might remember, God set apart the tribe of Levi, the Levites, to do the work of intercession, to do the work of atoning for Israel's sin. But even centuries before that, God had listened to Abraham as he interceded for the possibility, he didn't even know if they were there, but for the possibility of righteous people in Sodom. God listened when Abraham interceded. And even centuries before that, of course, God himself had interceded in the garden. In the garden, he had replaced the the fig leaf of human effort, right? with the animal skin of divine sacrifice with the man and the woman in the garden. And so the ministry of intercession had progressed from a piece of leather in the garden to a sojourner in the land to a tribe in the wilderness and now to a building, to a temple in Jerusalem. And in each place, the work of the priest was absolutely vital absolutely vital to God's redemptive plan. But for what purposes? First of all, it was for the purpose of honoring the holiness of God. Now, the book of 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles, you might know this if you know some of your Old Testament, the books of 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles cover some very similar history. But their separation is not just by a page in your Bible, it's actually by the exile of Israel. It's a historical separation between the two. Because the the book of Kings was written earlier from the perspective of before the exile of Israel, making note of all the failures, all that had gone wrong leading up to that exile. The book of Chronicles, Second Chronicles, covering the same history, was written after the exile, looking back decades before with the purpose of encouraging the Israelites. It doesn't chronicle the failures of fickle people. 
Instead, it chronicles the faithfulness of a holy God, a holiness that must be honored, even in a, a particular place at a particular time. The, the purpose of the book of Chronicles is actually stated, oddly enough, at the very end of Second Chronicles. If you were to turn in your Bible to Second Chronicles chapter 36, to the last paragraph in the book, you find there this purpose. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Now let him go up. Interesting. That's coming from the king of Persia. Expressing the purpose of the chronicler's writing of all of the accounts of chronicles. God had appointed Cyrus to build a temple for him in Jerusalem. Chronicles is reminding the Israelites of the temple that Solomon had built previously, which is no longer there, in order to exhort them to return and restore that temple to the honor of the holiness of God. And he reminds them even of how Solomon had written to the neighboring king, the king of Lebanon to the north, to acquire materials for that purpose. Solomon had written to that king decades before ages centuries before really and he had written describing his own his own intention and and purpose to build this temple and solomon wrote these words to the king of lebanon he said the house that i'm to build will be great for our god is greater than all gods but who is able to build him a house since heaven itself cannot contain him Solomon, the wise king, recognized what it wouldn't take a very wise person to recognize. The heavens can't contain God. How am I to build a house for him to dwell in? Solomon was, in a sense, lamenting, but maybe just marveling at the task that God had given him to do. God is holy. He's altogether greater. He's altogether more magnificent and more majestic than anything that I can even comprehend, how can I build a house for him? But Solomon did it, and he did it with great precision. And when it came time to move into this new house, this temple, notice Solomon's great care. He knew where his job ended and where the job of another began. In verse 2, you read that, he assembled everyone in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. That simply means that in David's time, he kept the Ark of the Lord, that, that golden sacred box that was the presence of God with his people. David had kept that Ark down in the city of David. It was kind of down the hill from Mount Moriah where the temple was to be built in what's still today called the city of David below the temple. And they were going to carry the Ark maybe a half a mile up the hill to where the temple had been built. But who did the carrying? Who did the bringing? Verse 4, the Levites took up the ark. 
in verse 5, that same thing continues. The, the tent of meeting and all the holy vessels, all the, the things that Moses himself even had used back in the day, the, the Levitical priests brought them up. And not only this, but once they arrived at the destination in the, the Holy of Holies in the temple, a permanent feature is emphasized in verse 9. Did you notice this odd feature? And the poles were so long that their ends were seen from outside the holy place. And they are there to this day. Now, just to be clear, the poles were not there on the day that the chronicler was writing. He knew that. It had been decades since the temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians. He knew the ark was long gone, pillaged and pirated by Others who had taken it, and the poles were certainly not there. He, was, he was, was chiming in and reflecting the words of the writer of Kings who said those poles, they're there to this day. It was a Hebrew idiom to suggest that those poles were, were to be there in perpetuity for as long as this temple is here, the poles will remain in their place because Solomon had learned a lesson from his father David's mistake. The poles were there for carrying the ark. They they would slide through rings in the side of the ark and the priests would pick up the poles and carry the ark very carefully. And David had learned this by his own mistake. Maybe you remember decades before, David had moved the ark to Jerusalem and, and his helpers had carelessly put the ark on a cart that oxen were pulling and the oxen stumbled and Uzzah, one of the men, reached out to braced the ark so it wouldn't fall down and he was struck dead because no man can touch God and so the long poles remained there in the temple honoring the holiness of God to this day he said I can tell you that to this day there is still a certain honoring sort of fear on the part of the orthodox Jews in Jerusalem The Temple Mount has changed since the days of Solomon and since the days of Jesus. The the Temple Mount has changed. It's different. At the writing of Chronicles, again, the the temple that Solomon had built had been destroyed. It wasn't there after some 500 years before the birth of Christ. Decades later, it was rebuilt by the Jews who returned at Cyrus' exhortation. And that second temple was destroyed centuries later in 70 AD by the Romans who grew weary of the Jews' rebellions. The the Romans destroyed that temple and there is no temple remaining there today. But the mount remains. And just where on that mount the holy place of the priest was located is not clearly known. And so... As we climbed up the ramp that leads to the Temple Mount on the day that we had access to go and walk across it, we read this warning as you go through the gate. There's a sign over the entry gate, and it says this, Announcement and warning from the chief rabbi of Israel. According to Torah law, entering the Temple Mount area is strictly forbidden due to the holiness of the site. So you wonder, why were we going? We're not Orthodox Jews. Our theology is a little bit different. The Temple Mount is occupied by the Muslim authorities now. There's a mosque there and a a Muslim shrine 
over the place where they think that the Jewish temple had been, although nowadays the Muslim authorities deny that any temple was ever there in history. But the Orthodox Jews of Jerusalem don't go on to the Temple Mount. They don't go there because it's not sure where the Holy of Holies was and they don't want to go to that place because only the high priest could go there and only once a year. And anyone else who entered that place would die because no one can touch the holiness of God. Their theology actually teaches them correctly. Apart from one who can intercede, no one can go in. But of course, their theology is missing something, isn't it? As we read from our assurance of pardon earlier from Hebrews, we enter into the holy place with confidence because of Jesus. Their theology is missing something because despite the great difference between the fallen creature and the holy creator, God, by grace, has cleared a path, has has made access to himself for us in Christ. And so it's also the priest's job to welcome the presence of God. Verse 11, you see this, uh, this, this truth there. And when the priests came out of the holy place, there in verse 11, and you notice that it's followed by this really long parenthesis. Did you notice this? The chronicler gives all these details in parentheses of what's going on here, but when the priest came out of the holy place, the sentence continues, and when the song was raised in praise to the Lord, what then happened? The house of the Lord was filled with a cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Now, it was impossible. It was impossible that a holy God should be with a sinful people. And yet, here he was, through the work of the priests, clearing a path of intercession. And it's a a critical step in the redemptive plan of God because it's really our nature and, and I would say even our need to be with our Creator. We long to be with our Father. And, and that's evident as you tour on through the Holy Land, as you, as you travel through Israel, that truth becomes very clear. Because the Orthodox Jews, they may not go on to the Temple Mount, but they come to it every day. Daily they come to the Temple Mount the western wall is, is the, the western retaining wall at the western edge of the Temple Mount. It's a retaining wall. It's part of, of the wall that King Herod built some 20 years or so before the birth of Jesus. It's still there. And the Orthodox Jews come to that western wall that used to be called the Wailing Wall, where they would come and, and wail and lament the loss of the temple ages ago. They call it the western wall, and they come there and and. In all of my life, I have never seen such fervent prayer. Orthodox Jews, there are men in this section and women in this section, and, and they come. You can't enter the area if you don't have something on your head. You had to wear a hat to go into the area. But you could go in and observe and watch as these Orthodox Jews would, would come as close to the wall as they could get, and they would begin to pray fervently, so fervently that they would actually move as they pray. They're reading their Hebrew scriptures and they're praying as close to the wall as they can get because they want to be as close as they can be safely. 
Christians do this sort of thing too, though. As you travel through Israel, you discover something that becomes a repeating theme throughout your travels, and that is this. On every site where some biblical event happened, there is a church. On every site, any holy site, so to speak, there is a church there. In Jerusalem, there is the famous Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which resides on the site which has been, since the first century, traditionally thought by Christians to be the tomb where Jesus' body was buried and the site of his resurrection. There's been a church over that site since two or three hundred years after the death of Christ. And even before that, Christians would go there to gather to worship. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre is over that tomb. The Basilica of Gethsemane is is a church that's situated in the Garden of Gethsemane at the base of the Mount of Olives where Jesus was betrayed by Judas. On the top of the Mount of Olives, if you climb up from the Church of the Basilica in, in Gethsemane, you climb up that hill to the top of the Mount of Olives, and there you find the Chapel of the Ascension because there is where the disciples saw the risen Christ ascend back into heaven. In Bethlehem, you find the Church of the Nativity, which is situated, of course, over the cave where it's traditionally thought that Jesus was born. And there's more. You travel on north and you find the Mount of Temptation, where it's traditionally thought that Jesus was tempted by Satan out in the wilderness. And there is, of course, a a Greek monastery there and at the Sea of Galilee. In the hilltop where the feeding of the 5,000 is thought to have occurred, there is the Church of the Multiplication of the Loaves and the Fish. And on the hillside next to the lake where the Sermon on the Mount was supposedly preached, there is a Franciscan church of the Beatitudes. And in the town of Capernaum, on the northern end of the lake, the hometown of the Apostle Peter and the town where Jesus resided while he was in Galilee in that area for his ministry, there is an octagonal shaped church there. It's built on pillars It looks like a UFO as it sits above an archaeological site, above an octagonally shaped remains of a Byzantine church that was built on top of what's thought to be the house of Peter himself, where Jesus stayed in Capernaum. There is a church on every holy site. Why? Because it's our nature to want to be where our Creator has been. Now, I don't mean to, to, to disrespect our dignity as human beings made in God's image, but it's, it's something kind of like what our little dog, Mosey, does at our house. Mosey is a 15-pound little furball, and she loves everyone in our family, but, but there's something about a dog in which they know who the daddy is. They know who daddy is in the house. They, they just do and so when we leave the house, Mary and I have to close our bedroom door because if we don't, Mosey will go into our bedroom, climb up on our bed, and find my pillow where she can smell where I've been and burrow down into my pillow because she wants to be where her daddy has been. We do the same thing. Christians have done this for ages and ages and ages, and we still do it today right here. I mean, with all of our effort, we try to get as close to God as we possibly can. We can't escape from it. You remember, at the core of our soul 
is religion. We can't escape from that fact. You are bound to something. But the thing about this passage that we read here is that by grace, God has already come close to us. The, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud. And that should make you remember the imagery from Exodus that, that, that the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire at night, the pillar of cloud by day, that was the presence of God with his people. He was there with them. That cloud filled the temple here and that pillar of fire would show itself hundreds of years later in Acts chapter 2. After Jesus had risen back to heaven and ascended back to his father, the disciples had gathered together on the day of Pentecost. And what happened there? Luke tells us that suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house. And tongues of fire appeared and rested on each one of the disciples. The stones of the temple were no longer the point. But rather, there were now living stones, as Peter would write, living stones being built up as a spiritual house, as a holy priesthood. And that's the point of Peter's imagery as he writes his, his letter to say that God is with you. His presence is with you, Christians. Not just on the Temple Mount, and not just in Jerusalem, and not just in the Holy Land, as we call it, but wherever his church is gathered, there he is. You know, I wonder if, if you ever sense that. When we as a congregation come to these communion tables, as we, we do two or three times a month, when we come and gather around these communion tables, do you sense who is there with you? I mean, you, you, you know as you kind of gather with each other, there's sort of family around this table. But do you sense the presence of God, that God himself is actually here with you? Do you recognize that? Even as we gather together in this theater on any given morning, as ordinary a place as this is, do you sense the fact that God is here with you? That's the promise of the gospel. That's what he's told us to recognize about himself because you don't need a man to be a priest for you in order to approach him. Jesus is the priest. The men who held that title in the Old Testament, they, they, they welcomed the presence of God and they could do it joyfully in their hearts because it meant also that they were to celebrate the love of God. There's a whole arrangement, you notice here, of, of consecrated priests and Levitical singers. That's kind of the theme of, of the writer's emphasis here. There are singers and musicians. That's what the parentheses of verse 11 is all about. You see that long parenthetical statement there. For all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves. And all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun, their sons and kinsmen arrayed in fine linen with cymbals and harps and lyres, they stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison and praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. Now, can you imagine the, the sheer volume of 120 trumpeters in the temple? The sound reverberating off the stone walls and the, just the sheer volume of the call of the trumpeters that was there. And when the singing was raised up, what did they sing? Praise the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. 
That is, you may know, one of the most familiar refrains from the Old Testament. Throughout the Psalms and the prophets and the narrative historical accounts, that's a refrain that comes again and again and again. That's why we call it a refrain. It keeps on coming. It's one of the most common and familiar refrains of the gospel, but perhaps that's because it's one of the most unbelievable truths of the gospel for us. It's unbelievable that God should love you when you have failed your friends again. It's unbelievable that God should love you when temptation has overpowered you again. It's unbelievable that God should love you when uncertainty looms over your head and over your family. And it is unbelievable that God should love you when tragedy strikes close to home. But it's just for these sorts of things that the priest's work was intended. You know, as the, as the move into the temple party here in Second Chronicles 5 approaches its end, you move into chapter 6, of course, and there you would read about Solomon's prayer. There he prays a long prayer, a long-winded prayer of a priest, a prayer of intercession. And you would read that he prays it like this. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands. And he prayed, O Lord, you have shown your steadfast love to us, your servants. Now, keep your promises to us. If a man sins against his neighbor, vindicate the righteous. If your people repent of their sin, hear their prayer and forgive. If they suffer an affliction because of their sin, but turn to you, give them relief. If a foreigner who is not of your people comes and seeks you, hear him and respond so that the world may know your name. And if your people sin against you, yet turn in repentance, hear them and forgive. Now Solomon was not a priest, to be clear. Solomon was a king. But it was his job to set Israel on the right path And so he did, but only because God had established a refrain, the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And that is what the priest celebrates. At the southwest corner of the Temple Mount today, there is what they call the, the Jerusalem Archaeological Park. It's outside the Temple Mount, down below the wall on the ground below in the the area surrounding the southern end of the temple around the western side of the corner there. And there are some important things to see there. There are the original steps of the second temple, the, the very steps that Jesus and his disciples would have climbed many times to go up and enter into the temple mount area. And there is, over around the southwest corner, something that caught my eye as we were standing there and looking at it, there is a pile of massive stones just around the, the corner on the western side, around the corner of the temple, down below the wall. There's a, a pile of massive stones, and they are piled on the, 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 the first century B.C. sidewalk of stones that runs along the side of the wall there, parts of that sidewalk having been crushed by these stones. There's a pile of these stones, and I ask our our guide, what, tell me about those stones. It's a pile of stones there. It just looks like a pile of massive rubble. And he said, those stones have been sitting there 
since 70 A.D. Since the Romans pushed them off the top of the wall, those stones still sit there, and among those stones is one stone of, of particular interest. A stone that's since been removed and taken to the, the Israel, Israel Museum in Jerusalem, but a replica sits there now, and it's a stone that has an inscription on it. The sto- stone is a cornerstone, not a foundation cornerstone for the bottom of the wall, but a top cornerstone for the top of the wall, and it has built into, carved into it, a, a niche where a man can stand, and right in front of where that man would stand is carved into the stone an inscription, and it says, the trumpeter's stone. This is the corner where the priest would go and stand with his trumpet and blow his trumpet out across the city of David so that all of God's people would hear the signal, that they would hear the call for God's people to prepare themselves, signaling the start of the Sabbath or the end of the Sabbath or the beginning of some holy day, for the the people of God to prepare themselves to celebrate the steadfast love of their creator, of their father. Because that steadfast love means that no voicemail jail can keep you out because the Son of God has gotten you in. That steadfast love means that no lack of holiness on your part can turn you away. Because the Son of God is holy. And that steadfast love means that no absence of God will ever be known by you, no matter where you may be, because the Son of God is with you. The priest has done his work. And to this day, and in perpetuity, the path is clear. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh Lord, our God, we give you thanks and praise for your word to us. And we pray, Father, that as we approach the communion tables together this morning, that we would sense your presence, that we would recognize that you are with us, that we are not merely with one another, but that we are with you because you have called us to come into your presence. And so, Father, we pray that as we do, that you would fill us with faith, And give us your strength in Jesus' name. Amen.